hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child and adolescent psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organisation based in Melbourne that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and the wider community. In these podcasts, we go a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioural and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. You can also access the references mentioned here on the website. Today, we're going to turn the tables and Amanda Stone, who is one of our committee members of the association, will be interviewing me. Amanda has a long-standing background in education and student welfare. So over to you, Amanda. Thank you, Ruth. As you've already mentioned, you are a child and adolescent psychotherapist and clinical psychologist, and your clinical experience covers more than four decades. You trained as a child and adolescent psychotherapist in the UK, and you came to Australia in 1989 to take up the inaugural position of Chief Psychotherapist at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. You are now the Director of the Centre for Child and Family Development, and aside from your extensive clinical work, you've developed innovative trainings on a psychodynamic approach to child and parent development that have been run throughout Australia and overseas. You're the author of six highly acclaimed books concerned with child and family development, Rethinking ADHD, Time-Limited Psychotherapy, and Parenting. And currently, you're an advisor to a project in the NHS in the UK on time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy. That's quite a CV. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you. I'd like to talk to you about your recent audio training entitled Living and Working Psychodynamically. Can you tell us a bit more about the title and why you've made it the focus of your latest audio training? Thank you, Amanda. Um, I want to let people know that there's more to psychology and understanding ourselves than only cognitive behavioural approaches like CBT and the giving of strategies And I want to let people know that a psychodynamic approach has made practical and unique contributions to the mental health of children, parents and families, really as part of a whole century and and individual adults. By recognising the importance of our early life experience, the importance of attachment on development, and this has had a major impact on the way, for example, we now view childhood as a separate period of development, It's also had a major impact that people may not be aware of on the kind of services we provide for children. Um, And psychodynamic understanding has also had an impact on our understanding of separation and the way we perceive trauma. It's contributed to how we understand family life about family systems and also how we understand the influence of group dynamics in our everyday work life. Yes, it's quite extensive, isn't it? It would be helpful to have an idea or a summary of what you understand by a psychodynamic approach. I Thank you. I think the, the psychodynamic approach, um, perhaps the simplest way to answer this question is to say that in a psychodynamic approach, what you see is not what you get. You know, it's a bit like the computer, you know, which says what you see is what you get. In other words, a psychodynamic approach is primarily concerned with the context of a problem and the recognition that any problem always has a history. So it focuses on the interrelationships between people and between our history and current behavior behaviors. So perhaps a couple of examples may help. Um, As a child psychotherapist, I may see a child referred because of their annoying or challenging behaviour in the home. 
Rather than seeing this as the whole of the problem, I ask the question, what does it mean? Not how can I get rid of the behavior, but rather what function does the behavior serve? In other words, we recognize that all behavior always has a meaning and is always a communication. So the annoying behavior of a child always speaks the family and what is going on in the family. So as a, a psychodynamic therapist, I always involve parents as well as the child in trying to understand why the child has to resort to this behavior. There may be many reasons for this, such as disruptions in the family, separation, divorce, loss, etc. And you know, it's very striking how often um, parents may say that even though they may be wanting to separate or there may be a bereavement or some major change or parent has lost their job or their huge financial problems, they talk as though the child never knows what's going on. Whereas mm -hmm. children come into the world with an amazing radar, which means they have to know what's going on. You know, they have they are hypersensitive to their environment. So in other words, you know, sometimes a behavior may not be, they're not able to articulate what their concern is, but they may behave in an, in an annoying way, which has to, which draws attention to that concern. Yeah. And then in, in adults, for example, we may find that someone comes along um, with a panic attack and understandably, because this is a very unpleasant experience, they want to know how to get rid of the panic attack or manage it. But even in this situation, we would take a step back and try and understand the meaning of the symptom and ask questions about it. So we recognize in a psychodynamic approach that behavior is seldom random. You know, it doesn't emerge from nowhere. The, the adult may say, it just came out of nowhere. Suddenly I had a panic attack. Or the parent may say about the child, um, his, you know, he was fine and now suddenly he's an impossible child, almost as though they're walking, walking down the road and a stone has hit them on the head, who happens, which happens to be their child. But actually, if we start to ask a few more questions, quite simple questions about people's history and their life story, it always emerges that a problem, even a panic attack, has antecedents in the form of earlier events or experiences that have given rise to the problem, albeit in a different form. Um, one of the things that I often talk about is that when people feel sad or depressed or they feel they have a panic attack, while that is, we don't want to walk around always being depressed, but being a bit sad and reflective is a reasonable, normal part of life. I mean, we can't always be in a state of hyper animation where everything's fantastic. I mean, there are lots of very worrying things that go on in life and in the world around us. And that doesn't mean we have to walk around being depressed in a major way, but we have to acknowledge the reality of life to some extent and that that sometimes feeling a bit depressed or having a panic attack is a message you know people see that see that as an enemy it's an enemy to their state of mind you know the panic is an enemy but it's not an enemy necessarily even though it's uncomfortable it's actually a message that we may want to listen to it's mm -hmm. like one part of the body giving a message to another but it also lets us know how complex the brain is and the nervous system. You know, mm -hmm. so a panic attack about something apparently innocuous, uh, meeting someone or going to a party or an event, may in its background be connected to a memory that has actually been tucked away in the mind. Yeah, yeah. it's telling us something. So, so how does that psychodynamic approach differ from other forms of psychology? Well, I suppose it's really about going beneath. It's going below the surface. Um, you know, I don't want to say that a, a cognitive behavioral approach is never useful. It can actually be useful, but it's but it's very much about narrowing what I call the field of inquiry. The you know, in my experience and also in my training, which I have to confess took place in psychology many many years ago, but I don't think it's shifted that much. You're really narrowing the frame. You're you're taking for granted what it is that the person presents, and you're wanting to rid them of it, um, uh, and in a sense uh, create less discomfort. Yeah. So you're not you're not wanting to understand the meaning of the symptom in any depth. You take it's it, it's a more medicalized approach actually that the symptom is worrying and therefore 
um, the person needs to sort of get rid of it. I, I, I think CBT can be very useful in areas such as um, some obsessive uh, compulsive behaviours, not entirely, um, and in areas such as agoraphobia. But I will say that um, I watched a television program many years ago about the uses of CBT with a, a, a patient who was agoraphobic, which meant they couldn't go out. They were trapped in their home. It was very difficult for them to go out. And they they had a, a young woman who who applied a sort of cognitive behavioural approach where they, they would go out just for a short while, then they would go out for longer periods, um, uh, they would take public transport and so on. And this woman actually did quite well. Now, one of the things that I noticed was that what actually had also contributed to her improvement was the positive relationship with the CBT therapist. She had an important ally. Yes. And that is also something that we have to take into account. I think with all therapy, whether it's psychodynamic or CBT, that it is the relationship between the um, patient, the client, and the person who is giving it that is very, very significant. And in fact, there's been a, a, um, a sort of a meta-analysis carried out in recent years about how it doesn't matter which which therapy you apply, the most important factor is the therapeutic relationship. But interestingly, that is also something that a psychodynamic approach focuses on right up front. They acknowledge that as a reality and they talk about it in terms of the transference, what it is that the patient brings into the therapy. You know, they may they may see someone uh, and, and project onto them all kinds of wishes and hopes and ideas, both positive and negative. Um, and that has to be worked with and understood. But then there's also what the therapist brings to the patient. They're not just a, a stone wall. They also, you know, they may have they may be irritated or bored or become sleepy <laughs> or something like that. So it's it what this is why it's called psychodynamic. You know, it's not talking about a symptom at arm's length. It's always talking about therapy as a very dynamic interactional process. That that's that is the primary issue. And I think as these these um, this meta analysis showed, that is what happen, That is what helps people get better overall. And alongside, we hope, you know, good quality uh, therapy, whether it's psychodynamic or CBT or whatever it is. Mm. And and it's often thought that psychodynamic ideas about relational aspects um, based as they are on psychoanalysis, um, popularly it's believed that they're not evidence-based um, and have been challenged. Can you explain if that is in fact the case? Well, um, I think it really, first of all, I'd like to say a little bit about evidence-based practice yeah. Um, the, you know, this is a, a term that's used very loosely these days, and mm. it's become a, a, a bit of a, a jargon term. I think that whatever, whenever people talk about something being evidence-based, I would suggest that they always read the label. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they find that the evidence is actually very questionable in many cases. You know, yeah. I recall one particular project that I won't name the exact details of, but um, the person who had promoted this particular approach, it was a, it was a very particular kind of um, supportive therapeutic approach, and they they very loudly proclaimed that it was evidence based. But in the end, when you looked at the small print, they themselves had carried out the um, assessment, oh so God. it hadn't been carried out by any independent um, source, as it were. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it was. It, it couldn't be, I mean, the evidence was only the evidence of the person who had created this particular program. So I think we have to be very careful about that. We also find even in um, in medicine that um, uh, people will people think that anything that is medical is you know can be accepted absolutely without questions, totally totally evidence based. But we've had a slew of exposés recently about. Um, uh, the uses of medication, such as the opioids. I mean, that would have been, you know, pharmaceutical companies. Um, as you know, if you look at, again into the small print, they have what they call null 
findings um, that, that where things do not have any, an impact, but they don't publish that. So they're, they're not transparent. You see, when you, you've really got to go, you've got to nut out and really look at what does evidence-based really, really mean. So even the pharmaceutical companies do not mention the null uh, findings. The other thing is that some of these opioids would have been presented as totally evidence-based, very safe, et cetera, et cetera, when now we know there's huge panic and horror about their impact. The other thing is we also find in some medical treatments that um, uh, even currently appear to be popular, that there's also a, a countercurrent saying they have no use at all, they have no efficacy at all. So I think we've got to go down that, we've got to first of all take a very a careful approach to what is evidence-based. Um, but I would say that um, there has actually been a lot of research in psychodynamic work. Um, the, the, um, it's not, the, 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 the thing about psychodynamic work is you can't, you have to use a, a, a different model. Um, you, it's, it's, a very, it's very tricky to use sort of thousands of people in a cohort. And because of the complexity of human um, experience and relational experience, you've got to have a somewhat different approach, which is a qualitative approach rather than a quantitative approach. And that can be used very carefully and, and can make an enormous, uh, have an enormous impact. I mean, there is, in fact, a lot of research going on at the moment in child psychotherapy um, uh, where uh, there's people are looking at um, what impact psychodynamic work has as opposed to CBT. There's a, there's, there was a huge study recently uh, on nearly 500 uh, families and adolescents on the difference between uh, a CBT approach to um, adolescent depression and a psychodynamic approach. So there's a, a huge amount going on. The other area of research that is very strongly evidence-based at the moment is that of attachment. And so there are generations of research about that, um, about the vital role. I mean, it's really taking John Bowlby's ideas of uh, a separation, loss and attachment and operationalizing that. And that's that's now work that's been going on literally, I think it's about 75 years of research work. So it's gone through a variety of, of generations and of, of research and has made some, there's a huge amount of publication in that area, research publication on different types of attachment, secure um, uh, attachment, what constitutes secure attachment, also on um, uh, what whether you can predict secure attachment, what kind of adult experiences would give rise to that or not. Um, so in fact, there is a huge amount going on. Uh, at the moment. And uh, again, I think it's about validating uh, uh, different approaches yes. in, in, in the field. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Ruth. Um, just going back to the title of the audio training, you obviously take a view that the psychodynamic approach is more than treatment, as you've just said, but it's a way of understanding oneself in relation to the wider world that it can apply to anybody. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yes. Um, do you mean in the sense of, of applying it to other uh, outside of a treatment mode or? Um, just generally uh, anybody um, wanting to understand themselves more through a psychodynamic approach. Yes, I suppose there's a lot to say about that. Um, um, I suppose if we um, have sort of going back to Sigmund Freud, um, you know, when people might say, well, what's the difference? What's the, what is it that one might understand? And I think, you know, if, if people single out one of the most significant aspects, I think it is, you see, in our current society, there's an enormous impact, there's enormous emphasis on getting rid of a problem. I might just go back a few steps, really, because I think um, <clears throat> we also have to take into account that we've just we've just been through this horrendous COVID pandemic, for mm. example. And in the course, I mean, our lives have changed radically, and I think that they will continue to change radically in ways we will only begin to understand in years to come. 
One of the things that it seems to have given rise to, as far as I can see, is people demand um, diagnoses that are highly medicalized at the moment. You know, so there's an enormous emphasis on um, ADHD, for instance, which, uh, you know, as you know, I did a lot of work on ADHD with um, with colleagues in the past. And um, my, uh, my very distinguished uh, neuropsychology co colleagues, you know, said at the time that, that pure ADHD exists in no more than something like 3% of the population. But now it's become the uh, the diagnosis of the day. And a lot of adults are, are demanding it and saying, I knew that my problems in life were always due to something and it's due to... So, in fact, what the question you're asking is yeah. the diametric opposite of what is happening to people. In other words... The psychodynamic approach wants to go back into history. It looks at lines of continuity between the past and the present. It is, it's asking questions about why things happen the way they do. It wants to go into depth. But I think at the moment there is a cry against that. People don't want to know about that. They're just saying, give me an answer, give me the drugs. I mean, the fact is that, 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 that many of the drugs prescribed for ADHD are very short-term uh, working drugs anyway. Uh, they're not going to change anyone's personality, but so there's a there's a there's a lot of anger and and wish to have some immediate um, solution, and and very medicalized solution. I so I'm, I'm, this is a very long winded answer, but um, what I'm trying to get at is that I think uh, when people don't want to know what's really happening, or they are annoyed or angry, and they make these sorts of demands. You've really got to look in a much into a much broader area. What's going on so, socio-politically, socio-economically? Those are also things that are encompassed in a psychodynamic approach. And Freud himself understood that. I mean, he wrote a book towards the end of his life called Civilization and Its Discontents. And he made a very prophetic comment that he talked about drives, for instance, the immutable, those drives that will never change, which is towards aggression and sexuality, and how we have to learn how to manage aggression, but we certainly haven't given the ghastly wars and hideousnesses that go on. We also have to manage sexuality in, in, in all its forms, but we're not managing that terribly well either when we have all the child abuse things, the pornography, the complaints that women make, the, you know, he, what he's basically talking about, what, what Freud talks about is how you live in the world, how you become socialized, and how you manage your basic instincts. You know, yeah. that you can stand in a queue getting annoyed, but you're not going to hit someone on the head, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Or that, yes, you know, there's a lot of porn available, but you're not going to spend your life permanently watching that or abusing children and women and men, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's basically Freud had very his eyes wide open to the reality of who we really are. Yeah, and made I think some amazingly comments that are unbelievably contemporary for mm. what we today have to understand. But you see, I think there's another element which is that I think people are fed up and angry and wanting medicalized um, uh, diagnoses because they've been very badly let down. I think there's there's no doubt, you know, I think it's a bit of a polemic here, but I don't think that various services and governments over the COVID period did a, did a fantastically good job. I think they did a rather poor job. And they now are looking at cutting services. I mean, a lot of money was spent on all kinds of nonsense and a whole lot of very wealthy people got money for things, for money they should never have received and that they're never going to give back. And now there isn't any money or the money's run out. And so they want to cut mental health services or they want to cut um, family violence services or a whole host of things. So I think people have not been well served. They're very angry. And now they want to, they don't, they know they can't, they, they can't get into see, as they say, I can't get into see a psychologist. I can't get into see anyone. I just give me the, give me the pill for goodness sake and I'll feel better. You know, we may, it's, it's no good being critical of people like that. They are doing whatever they can in very difficult and challenging circumstances. I mean, that's a very long way of trying to um, help people understand that. But what, in my experience, once people understand that they can be the creators of their own solutions, which is also what a psychodynamic approach 
is saying it's really in your own hands. It's being a facilitator of an understanding of the inner world. We live in the inner world and the outer world. And we have to be able to work out, see how we can negotiate the two, in fact. That, that that's great um and it is, it is hard on a personal level to kind of think about engaging with the psychodynamic approach um for all the reasons you've just described but it can be very useful in settings in group or institutional it, settings. it can you see i also think it's got to be a bit more in the culture um yeah i, I think if i may say so i think australia is a very pragmatic culture and, um, you know, there are psychoanalytic institutions, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think they've really taken much root. And I'm not convinced that, that some of them come across very much as imports. And I, I'm not a fan of that. I think you have to develop a, the, an approach that's in line with the culture that you find, which is it's, Australia has a very pragmatic approach. Um, I think you find, for instance, that in the UK, um, uh, the kind of training that, you know, child psychotherapy is a protected title. Mm. Not every anyone can call themselves that. And in order to train in that way, you have to have, um, it's primarily psychodynamic. You have to have your own personal analysis. You really have to think about children and hopefully parents, et cetera, as well. But I just want to say something else, which is that years ago when I lived in the UK, um, I was involved in setting up a national organization called Exploring Parenthood, which was not intended to offer psychotherapy, but a group of colleagues and I got together and we we felt that by the time people came to see us in the clinic, their relationships had already broken down. And we thought, you know, there's got to be preventative work. So I'm a huge fan of that, as you know. I think I think these are the psychodynamic ideas about how we live, how we relate. They're much too important to be left in a clinic setting. So um, in the UK, we set up um, uh, uh, groups. We set up different programs, um, one of them primarily based in London, where parents could come at a weekend for a day with their children. And we ran groups that were not about treatment. It was just about we had a, a group of very highly qualified psychotherapists, psychiatrists, and so on, but we ran, everything was run in group form with large groups and small groups where people talked about various issues and we had various topics that could be under fives, adolescence, parenting alone, um, a whole variety of topics. Uh, but in that one day, um, they, the the children were looked after. They had, a, they had their own a, a, a group activities. Parents were looked after as well. And at the end of that, it wasn't about talking about psychoanalysis or anything like that. It was talking about the meaning of behaviour and it had an enormous impact. It wasn't about anybody needing to know about psychotherapy. People came from all walks of life um, and found that that there were two things that were terribly important. We we gave a sort of a, a kind of presentation about what are the milestones of some of these developmental issues that you might want to think about. But we didn't do much more than that. It was also about parents talking with each other. And so someone who had been through a particular problem could help someone else in the group. And that was a hugely successful national program that got um, government support, uh, Mm -hmm. support from um, voluntary organizational support. And really, we ended up running a training program where we combined uh, uh, professionals and parents and where parents themselves carried on setting up some groups in their local areas. So you can get these ideas across. You know, it's not, um, uh, it, there's nothing uh, f- fantastical about it. You know, it's not, it's, you're not, you're not, you don't have to enter into some strange arcane world. And Freud himself had a marvelous. Um, a, a quote, this marvelous quote of his. He apparently, he went to the United States, and in the US, there's this idea, you know, the next big thing. And so people rushed into psychoanalysis quite quickly, as we know from, you know, Woody Allen and all that kind of stuff. And um, they said, oh, this is going to be fantastic. And he said, oh, no, no. He was very concerned that they were running away with these ideas. And he said, look, you know, it's a, it's more to do with the way you can understand the world. But he was very um, 
um, he didn't want to make unrealistic claims for psychoanalysis as a, as a cure and as a treatment. And he had this wonderful quote where he said, well, he said, you could convert hysterical misery to normal unhappiness. That he thought was about what you could manage to do. And I and I think if you can achieve that, you're doing an enormous amount. I yes, mean, progress. you know, any treatment mode, if they can turn hysterical misery into normal unhappiness, they've done a, a very, yes. very great job. But I think it also shows that he's not making ridiculous claims, yes. but it, you know, it's about people getting to know each other and um, to know themselves, actually. Oh. And you see, the other thing about this, this approach is that it's trying to set up a process so that, you know, the, the, the problem about giving strategies, and, you know, I always say that the problem with strate strategies is their use-by date has expired as, as the strategy leaves your lips. And mm. it, it is... Can you say a, a bit more about that? Well, it's about, first of all, it's, it's very limited. It's, that doesn't mean that I would never make some practical suggestions. But the idea of a, you know, a, a, a patients and people often come and see me and they say, we need strategies for my child, you know. And that's not, the, the reason they say that is because they believe, this is where I think as professionals, we have to take responsibility for communicating things in a very unhelpful way. We give people the impression that there is such a thing as a series of strategies. And mm. we give people the impression there is some magic bullet. There is a way of rethinking you know, realigning your brain to think more positively. Um, and I think that is unfair on people. So they frame their problem the way they think we can help them. <laughs> you know, so the strategies are limited. The other problem with strategies, when I say the use-by date has expired, is because they're not dynamic. You see, they make an assumption that the behaviour is, is like a monolith. You know, it's just like there in time. Meanwhile, the behavior is already going to change. Yeah. You know, by the time they get home, their child is already doing something else for some other reason. So it it it's the use by date, it, it has already expired. The other problem about a strategy is that it gives the impression that that someone's got a box of tricks, they've got a, a, a suitcase under the chair, and they just open it up and, and tantalizingly give the client something, you know, for which they have to pay. You know, and I feel some of those strategies, you can just get them online. You know, I say that to people I see, you don't have to pay me for that. Just go on the internet and there are millions of strategies about all sorts of things. But what, it, what they don't have any lasting value. And when you think, when you work psychodynamically, you know, for example, when a parent realises that their child's behaviour has, has got something to do with wanting not to attack them, or that they hate them, but they want to be close to them. Yes. You know, it's a revelation. You know, it's making connections between uh, uh, things that people may not normally connect, but which may be actually quite obvious. Mm -hmm. you know, in the scheme of a busy life where mm -hmm. people have to get up in the morning, get the children off to school, go to work, you know, there's not a lot of time for that kind of reflection. Um, and by actually helping people to find the op option to reflect. You know, what, what I've also found very interestingly, uh, and I, I must also just say this, that psycho, a psychodynamic approach doesn't mean that people have to lie on couches and come and see therapists for years and years. You know, it's amazing how much they can take away out of a very brief contact. And I, I do a lot of work on time-limited therapy. That's something I'm, I, I feel has a major uh, future but um, sometimes what you find is that people come for a period about one child. And I found they sometimes contact me when the child is a bit older or even about another child. And I don't see that as a failure. I, I, I see that as a sign that they have absolutely taken on board a whole process and way of thinking that they have found helpful. You mm -hmm. see, so that you're, you're empowering people. That's the, that's the core element. You're not... Mm -hmm. You're not saying, I have the answer in my little suitcase and here it is, and I know, and you don't. You're, not, you're helping people to own what they know. You're facilitating their knowledge and understanding mm. and their capacity for reflection and being able to be their own therapists in a sense. Yeah. So, so psychodynamic work 
is a process of facilitating amongst other things, but it's a bit more than more than that. Um, what sort of training would somebody need, would a practitioner need to use a psychodynamic approach in your view? Well, I know it's the same as the UK. Yes. Australia and New Zealand, say? Well, they would need to have, um, they would need, they would be, it's like learning by doing, you know, in, in that sense. So it's not, that different from say you know a medic medical approach you've got to see the treat the patient so it's entirely practically based I mean I do hear sometimes of people calling themselves psychotherapists who've never in their training seen a patient everything's been done by role play and I, I'm sorry to have to say that I can't see that as being viable on any level um so basically you have to have the, the in, in child psychotherapy um but I can only sort of talk about the training that I did. Um, we had to see a child under five, a child under uh, 12, and an adolescent, so that you have to get experience across the whole age range. Now, I'm not suggesting that that training is the has to be the absolute baseline for all trainings, but but uh, if people are going to work with children and their parents, in the, they have to see the the child they do have to have experience of working with children across the whole age range they have to have um, experience of working with parents it has to have some it has to be reasonably intensive it can't be occasional so it's got to be at least weekly i mean the, the in the training that i did at the tavistock clinic it was like four times a week it's, you know I'm, I'm not suggesting it absolutely has to be that but you have to see real people <laughs> in real time and then you have extensive supervision and the other thing that goes along with it is a lot of theoretical work. So you have to go through what they call the canon, if you like, of you 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 read you you read Freud, you read Klein. I mean, Melanie Klein is a, one of the main um, theorists around child analysis, and Anna Freud, and many other Donald Winnicott, many many other people. So you 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 have to uh, do the theoretical work. The other very important element in in psychotherapy training that both for adults and for children that has come into play is is doing infant observation mm. which is which is very interesting because that is um uh visiting an ordinary family um in uh not someone with major problems but visiting um a, a, a family with a newborn baby and in um, uh, in the training, the child psychotherapy training, you have to visit over a period of two years. Oh. You have to visit weekly, and that's written up in detail and taken to a seminar where it's where it's discussed. And so in other words, you have to be in touch with ordinary human development and infancy from the beginning, and the the, the trials and tribulations at times for parents and the child, and so on. So it's very much it's right in there in terms of development. And then uh, in child psychotherapy, you also have to um, do an observation of young children in a childcare setting or a kindergarten setting, which is very, very important, looking at the group dynamics that take place in the child's struggle for mastery in the set in the, in the setting and what that gives rise to. Um, so that is sort of just in a bit of a nutshell, a child psychotherapy training. But of course, you also have to have your own personal analysis. You know, it's a bit like they say in doctors, uh, you know, um, heal and know thyself. Well, that's mm. that you can't proceed, I don't think, really in any kind of psychological endeavor, any kind of psychological therapy. I think it includes cognitive behavioral therapy as well, without any opportunity to explore your own issues or self. You, you really, I, I feel it's that, that is a that it offers a protection to the to the patient. Yes, yes, because you bring your own things to that situation, don't you? Absolutely. So, you know, in an, in an adult therapy, you would, of course, be seeing adults um, under yes. supervision and, in you know, intensively, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing that's very important, um, in, in particularly in working with adults, as well as it is, I mean, it, it, in the UK, and I think here as well, the, these trainings are postgraduate. They're not. They're not undergraduate trainings. They they require people to have had some other experience, or they have come from. Uh, I mean, in the, the, the Institute of Psychoanalysis has, has taken masses of doctors on 
in and psychiatrists, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure that's always, but they're always the ne- necessarily the best people to be training. Um, you know, I think that's more about a sort of conservative tradition. But mostly the people who go into these trainings have already got some professional background, but it is very much a postgraduate kind of um, experience. Yeah. So given the training, education, experience, supervision that's really needed to practice psychodynamic work, just to get back to applying psychodynamic principles in an organisation or a setting, how could they be useful in places, everyday places like schools, workplaces, aged care facilities, even prisons? How could these principles be helpful? Well, I think tremendously helpful. I think, as you know, I've spent most of my professional life applying uh, psychodynamic principles. I mean, it's interesting you talk about prisons because as part of the Exploring Parenthood project, um, we worked in uh, uh, for quite a considerable period of time. We ran workshops in a prison in London called Wormwood Scrubs, which mm-hmm. was as awful as it sounds. And we, the focus that we want, we, there was a, a, a probation officer, a very unusual woman, who had heard about our work and she said, would you be prepared to come into the prison and talk to the men who are fathers who are in transit to leaving? The, the, they weren't necessarily the hardcore people. And we had the most extraordinary experience. I mean, it was, it was absolutely unforgettable. We arrived at Wormwood Scrubs and we were given a room by the warders and we sat in this room and they said, oh, the men, the men were, it was a recreational time for them and they were all, some of them were playing ping pong. It was very strange. And they said, and the warders, and no one's going to turn up, you know, we were these three women. There was a probation officer, female colleague and myself. And they said, oh, uh, I don't, they, they came in to take chairs away. And we said, no, no, just keep the chairs here. Anyway, then a few of the men put their head round, heads around the door and the next thing we knew, this room was packed to the nines. That men were sitting on the windowsills. They were, they were occupying virtually every tiny space there was. And we just talked about being a dad. And we yeah. said, it doesn't matter where you are. It, you may be in prison, but you are, for your child, you are not in prison. You are in their minds. Yeah. You know, they are holding you in mind and you for all the sad things that have happened, are holding them in mind. And in a way, that is a, that's a psychodynamic approach. Yes. Yes. And it was amazing. I mean, we carried on doing very, very interesting work in, in the prison. The mm. other thing is, you know, I'm a, you know, I schools. I mean, <laughs> you've, you have so much experience in work with schools. I mean, wouldn't you, you know, it's helping teachers to see that, you know, instead of thinking that an irritating child has to go off and see the school psychologist, yeah. to understand how you can work in the classroom. Yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, you're turning the tables, Ruth, again. Yes. Well, your your statement that I've heard you make many times that all behaviour has a meaning was very useful to me in education. Part of my role was to support teachers with children in the classroom to understand the behaviour. And as you say, many people wanted a quick fix and sometimes that was discipline and sometimes it was medication and sometimes it was a strategy. Um, But with teachers who are open to it, if I could talk through the behaviour and sometimes I'd have a little bit of understanding what was going on for that child at home or in the rest of their life, that I could share with the teacher. It would help them to understand what that child was really saying, what what was it was ex- they were expressing through their behaviour and what they actually needed. And understanding that for a teacher is very powerful because instead of reacting in a way that can set off a chain reaction in a classroom of 25, 26 children, which is not helpful, um, you know, kids can press buttons, as we know, if they had that understanding, they could react in a different way, a more empathic way and a more meaningful and useful way to both the teacher and the child. 
but also to the whole group in that classroom. Um, and it's time consuming, but ultimately it saves an awful lot of um, hurt, unhelpful strategies, if you like, uh, dead ends, and can set a path up for um, a happier setting for everybody. Yes, I, I, I mean, you put it so well, and I couldn't agree more. You know, when you say it's time consuming, but it also is so time saving because yes. so much time ends up with these sorts of um, feelings of, of hopelessness and helplessness. And then, of course, the departure of teachers from it, teaching uh, yeah. because they feel so overwhelmed. Um, and I think one of the other things about you know, teaching is that the children, it's not just the children who are there to learn, it's also the teachers who. <laughs> Yeah. Of it to learn, you know, and so I, I think there's there, there are enormous potential. There's enormous potential there. I think, um, you know, when I was working at the children's hospital, I was I worked quite extensively with the pediatricians, really looking at developmental psychological issues, but also the what was happening in their day to day work because you know medicine is about the body and the symptom and the cure, and you know. But when you're working in that kind of setting, you really have to take a lot more into account. Mm. It's interesting that there was a, a, and then, of course, working with GPs who can never have the time. You know, they're always too busy, um, uh, notoriously. Um, yeah. There's a, a, a very interesting book by a psychoanalyst called Michael Barland, and he wrote a book called Five Minutes for the Patient, where he's saying people come into the uh, a consultation with a doctor and they may be bringing a whole lot of other things which are in a way, you know, to what extent does the physical symptom have a psychological meaning and, and to what extent can you understand that? And then, you know, you have people who are, who come repeatedly to see the GP um, or you have uh, uh, children who repeatedly come with um, a problem that appears to have no organic cause Yes. You know, so how can you begin to think about these things? So the application of these ideas is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you can apply in groups and in organisations um, and in settings that are very difficult <clears throat> and challenging. So, for example, in aged care, you know, in, in all of these settings, what you do, uh, one of the first things that, that a psychodynamic approach would do, it would ask, they would ask a question, and the question is, what kind of ideas and questions or hypotheses can we make about working in this setting? You know, if you're working in an aged care setting, what is it that confronts you and around and 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 you have to deal with? What are the stresses and particular challenges? You know, rather than saying, "Oh, we're all saints here." I mean, nursing is the same thing. Yes. You know, all all the helping areas. You know, people go into these areas don't spend much time or don't have the opportunity they're not given the opportunity to reflect they just have to keep going and keep going then they get burnt out and they leave and they never want to come back so one has to really as a psychodynamic approach would say let's look at the setting it's enormously stressful it makes enormous demands what are the demands how can we think about them it's not about getting rid of a problem it's about working with it and supporting people to engage with it yeah, that that is the um, it's what I suppose in a summary I would call the what, the why, and the how questions. You know, in in any dilemma, whether it's working with children, working in an organisation where things aren't going well, you ask a question instead of saying let's just find a strategy. You know, put more money into it, take money out, or you know the terrible thing that politicians do. You know, they come into power and the previous. Um, government that they, they want to get rid of anything that the previous government has done mainly in health and social services they want to make their own mark they don't, they're not looking at the value of what the the the, the um, program may be um, but basically in all of these settings you, whether it's your whether you're working with children whether you're working with adults whether you're in a group wherever wherever you are you ask a question what is going on if you take a step back and reflect, and then another very good question is why? Why is this happening now? Why is a child who has behaved perfectly reasonably <clears throat> suddenly not sleeping or being annoying or a whole host of things? Why? And or an adolescent, 
Um, and then the, 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 the other question, which is terribly important, is how do I feel about it? You know, yeah. you have to bring yourself into the equipment. You're not, you, you can't deal with these things at arm's length. You know, this psychotherapy isn't an arm's length occupation. Uh, well, none of no, no helping profession is an arm's length occupation. No, 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 indeed. Um, Ruth, that's a really good place to end. I think our time is nearly up. You've um, described how the psychodynamic work is applicable everywhere, um, and it to me it just seems to make sense. And you've you've helped it just to, to make sense as well. Um, this recording will be available with your other audio trainings. Is that correct? On sound. Well, this will yeah, this this recording was, will go out as a free podcast. Yes. yes. Um, so this will go out um, next month. Yep. And we're going to be Yes, but if people want to access the detailed training, which goes into much more detail about the history of psychodynamic ideas and talks about the. Uh, all the founders and the their work and their and the application of that work and some of the practical examples, then they would need to access that via Soundwise. But okay. otherwise, this podcast will be is just part of the Talking Child Development podcast. Talking Child Development, excellent. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you for today. It's been a pleasure and a privilege, uh, Dr. Ruth Schmidt Nevin. Um, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you very much, Amanda. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.